Australia has a keen responsibility to really lead the world in climate change. We have to drastically and swiftly reduce our greenhouse gas pollution levels. Are we going to be the ones that could have saved the reef but didn't? You're listening to the Climate Council Podcast. Welcome to the Climate Council Podcast. I'm Alexia Boland. Amanda McKenzie is an environmental leader and the CEO of the Climate Council. Convinced young people were crucial to solving the climate crisis, she co-founded the Australian Youth Climate Coalition in 2006 and within three years helped build one of Australia's largest climate change advocacy groups with more than 100,000 members. She was soon after named Young Environmentalist of the Year in 2009 before joining the Australian Government's Climate Commission, tasked with communicating reliable and authoritative information on climate change to the Australian public. What happened next to Amanda and the Climate Commission changed everything. This Meet the Council episode looks at how the Climate Council was born and how Amanda McKenzie helped to lead the charge to create what is known today as Australia's leading climate communications organisation. She stopped by the Climate Council podcast with her baby daughter, Matilda. This is her story. I was at university and I was uh, passionate about a whole range of different topic areas. And I went on a holiday in Tasmania and went hiking and in the airport bought a book, Tim Flannery, The Weather Makers, um, just thinking, oh, this seems a bit interesting. And I read it while we were hiking through the Styx Valley. And the Styx Valley is this amazing um, stand of trees where they're, you know, taller than 75 metres. So you have to lean back to see the very tops of them. They're just enormous. And they've been there for, you know, over 400 years. So before Europeans even knew Australia existed. And then I was reading this book about how humanity could essentially um, destroy um, ourselves and much of life on Earth within a generation. And it was this amazing juxtaposition and I thought I've got to do something about this and had no idea what to do at the time. So how old would you have been at the time at university when you've kind of come to this crossroad? Because you weren't studying um, environmental science or anything like that. Um, I did do some environmental classes at uni, but I was about 22 or 23 when I um, sort of read the book and then I did a lot of reading on climate change and thought, you know, I care about all of these different social justice and environmental issues, but this seems to be one that's going to impact all of them. So whether it's refugees, whether it's poverty, whether it's um, human rights violations, all of this will be impacted by climate change. So that really motivated me to work on it, um, really with the idea that this is something that will... Um, if we can solve it, I suppose, would alleviate mass human suffering into the future. And so what was the next step when you decided, okay, I'm going to get involved? And there's a nice kind of element where you read Professor Tim Flannery's book and years later you'd be um, you know, CEO of the Climate Council running it and he would be alongside you. Um, but we can come to that later. Um, so what was the next step? What did you decide to do? Um, well, after the holiday in Tasmania, I went home to Melbourne worried about climate change. I read about it, I thought about it, and I had those sort of moments of waking up at 4am thinking, oh no, what do I do about this? This is awful, I've got to do something, but having no idea what to do. 
Um, so eventually my sister said to me, you know, we can do something. We can all do something. You can't save the world yourself, but you can have a go. And so we started doing presentations at universities and at um, schools about climate change and we built a organisation called, it was called Ascent at the time, the Australian Climate Change Education Network. It was sort of a bold name at the time for just the two of us and then a few extra people started to join. Um, that then gradually morphed into the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Then I met who, someone who's now a good friend of mine, Anna Rose, um, who had been in the United States seeing the Energy Action Coalition, which was a coalition of youth organisations working on climate change. And she brought the idea back to Australia saying, could we start something similar here where we bring together youth organisations and get young people active? Because obviously climate change, the younger you are, the more you will be affected. So the idea was you've got to have young people advocating on it. Um, particularly big social movements have always depended on young people being at the forefront of it. So um, Anna and I and a number of other people started the AYCC and Ascent, the organisation my sister and I had started, got sort of absorbed into that as the educational arm of it. And what was the response like, especially among your peers? You know, um, you're doing a, you know, a law degree, I think it was, and then all, taking on all of this social justice responsibility, but also trying to educate people about climate change and what it is and what they can do. What was, what was the response? Mm. Um, everyone was very interested. I think this is the time before Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth. So climate change wasn't a very well-known issue. And through that process of sort of I think I got involved in about 2005 and then Al Gore's movie came out at the end of 2006 and Tim Flannery's book got a lot of traction so over the period of starting um, First Ascent and then the AYCC climate change was really becoming the forefront of the national agenda so it meant that there was a lot of opportunities for me in terms of that advocacy work at the AYCC to um, meet politicians, to do start doing media work, to get in front of big groups of people and start talking about it. So there was a lot of interest and concern and you might remember at that time it was sort of leading into the Kevin Rudd election as well um, when climate change then had not only hit the national agenda but now was a big political story as well and Kevin Rudd was in contrast to John Howard as promising to do something about it. And so what did you spearheading the AYCC do with that opportunity? So we were really creative about it. So one of the big first projects was called Power Shift, a conference of a hundred and no, sorry, a thousand, a conference of a thousand five hundred young people in Sydney. So the idea was let's bring young people together from right around the country as an opportunity to see this growing network and to create local groups on the ground. And so the people that attended PowerShift, they got an opportunity to be inspired by the speakers that were there, to be trained in um, organising and activism, to meet a social network of people that really cared about the issue and were going to support them to continue to do it. And then some really fun, engaging activities. So, for instance, we did a mass dance on the steps of the Opera House that was choreographed by the um, crew from So You Think You Can Dance, which is a big TV show at the time. Wow. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun and got lots of media attention and YouTube traction and all that sort of thing. So PowerShift was one of those big projects that sort of put the AYCC on the map in the, the early days and then led into a whole range of different advocacy projects. And so after AYCC, which is still very much, you know, going strong, mm. very strong today and it's, you know, now has seed as well, what happened next? So once I'd been at the AYCC, I suppose it was four or five years, um, we'd sort of put a ceiling on the time that we could be classified as young. 
So I retired from the AYCC at about, I think I was 28, and looked at what was going to be the next opportunity. One of the really important principles of the AYCC is that it's genuinely youth-run for young people um, to have that voice. So we thought it was important that we sort of had a, a sunset clause even for ourselves. So I then looked at around and in doing the AYCC and this initial work on climate change, my motivation had been, well, what's a gap? in And engaging young people was a gap. And then at that point in time, um, I thought the big gap was in communications and how do we communicate this issue in a way that's going to really resonate with a mainstream audience. And at that time, um, the Gillard government had just established the Climate Commission, which is a government body designed to provide accurate information to the Australian public. So engaging scientists, business leaders, a range of other experts and helping them to communicate that. The, so I went into that uh, organisation as the senior comms advisor, then helping to, tr- I call it translation essentially, translating all of that expert content and supporting those experts to communicate in a way that's going to resonate with a general audience. And so how, how tough was that job trying to, I suppose, pick through the jargon and, and do the translating, um, which is quite, can be quite a dense topic and also quite dire depending on you know, which aspect you're looking at. Was, what was that kind of communications challenge like for you? Yeah, the, the challenge is significant. I think it was our goal that said it's a, a wicked problem, the communication of it. And it, you do have experts coming in from lots of areas that are, quite complex obviously you don't just have the science but all these different elements of the science like whether it's ice specialists or um you know oceanographers and um, meteorologists and all of these people that have significant depth of expertise and you're trying to get to the point of well what is the the piece that we can then communicate to the public that's got the sort of 30 second soundbite then you add to the science the economics the policy solutions the technology solutions renewable energy etc and there's just so many layers of complexity that comes into a discussion like this Mm. so um i think it had been useful for me having studied law law really teaches you to go through a lot of dense information and synthesize it in a crisp way um and i think that was the most helpful training I had for them coming into the communications landscape. So at the Climate Commission, working with each of the uh, commissioners at the time, going through with sort of a fine tooth comb on the reports and saying, number one, how do we communicate these reports in an effective way? So part of that is in the design, part of that is in the content and in the text. But then also how do we use that report to create a resonant media story that's going to be something that could be on the front page rather than something that will be ignored because, you know, it's too dense. Mm. And um, so it's really about going through those reports and finding, well, what's the, what's the hook that's going to make it interesting for now? And that was such a successful endeavour and this is also together with um, Professor Tim Flannery and many of the climate councillors who we have now. What was the next step when we uh, saw the transition to the Abbott government? So the Abbott government abolished the Climate Commission as the first active government. So I suppose at that time, um, Tim had become quite a lightning rod from, for some of the Conservatives as an exemplar of 
why of sort of the climate change issue so it was kind of who's the first scalp you can take and Tim's unfortunately was sort of in the firing line but I think also the climate commission had just been very successful we were the number one media voice on climate change and we were very trusted we're there putting the facts out all of the time correcting misinformation etc so we became a target um, when we were abolished, we had a fair idea that this was coming, but we didn't know in what way we would be abolished or when it would happen or any of those things. And we'd made an agreement prior to that thinking, well, if this does happen, we think the work we're doing is really important and should be continued. So let's see if we can't create a not-for-profit organisation to do the same thing. So that's sort of how the idea of the Climate Council was born. When the Climate Commission was abolished, we then had to work very rapidly um, to create enough of an organisation that we could fundraise to see if we could create this not-for-profit. So I think we had four or five days and in that time we created a basic website, a video, um, a logo and a media strategy as well as sort of the shell of an organisation wow. to um, to allow the fundraising to work. And then we went out the sort of following week after we'd been abolished and stood out on the limb and said, Australian public, will you get behind us and um, support this new not-for-profit organisation? So it was launched at 12 o'clock, um, I think it was the 22nd of September, and uh, the website went live at sort of 12 o'clock. 12.01 was the first donation. It had got, been getting a little bit of traction on Twitter because there'd been some speculation about what was going to happen. So 12.01, um, we got the first donation, $15, from a man in Western Australia. I remember wow. seeing it online thinking, well, this is a good start. You know, we Founding haven't promoted friend. in the, in the, yes. in the movie. Um, media yet um, and then through the night by the time I woke up at 6am we'd been raising money at a thousand dollars an hour and that's just from this sort of organic Twitter conversation Wow! then once the media story started to hit through the 6am news bulletins and then once we did the press conference at 9am uh, things really got going by sort of 9.30 we'd raised $130,000 and then there's this sort of media cyclone, international attention on what this was going to be and the crowdfunding campaign. Um, our Facebook page went from sort of zero to 60,000 over a couple of days. Twitter shut us down because we were growing so fast. They thought we must be buying Twitter followers. Oh. <laughs> and eventually by the end of that first night, um, we'd raised $500,000 and PayPal shut us down because they thought we must be money laundering. Oh, my goodness. So we had to sort of scramble to prove, no, no, this is a real thing. And then by the end of the 10 days, we'd raised $1.3 million. Yeah, so that put us back in business. And that was sort of, I think, equivalent to the budget of the previous Climate um, Commission. So that allowed us to then create a not-for-profit organisation and have the budget for the first year to, for me to then set up the organisation itself because obviously we just had a shell of an organisation. Mm-hmm. We'd only had a couple of days to sort this out. So, but I knew at that time we needed to demonstrate very rapidly to sort of the 20,000 people that had got behind this new organisation that we were going to add value. So Will, Stefan and I, who's uh, one of our key scientists, sat down to get the first report ready to go. I think it went out maybe a week or a week and a half after we launched before we really had everything sorted out as an organisation. <laughs> we were still writing the constitution and all of those sorts of things, but we were already... Delivering the science. Yeah, putting out reports. To show all of those people who had contributed as founding friends, um, we're 100% ready to go, we're here, we're going to, um, you know, shake things up in the Australian discourse. And what was the reaction from the conservative movement to this? I'm sure they didn't expect this to happen. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, Greg Hunt said on television, you know, this is the free market at work, um, which I suppose that's true. Uh, but people were recent. I think the Conservatives were recently unhappy that people that had been looking for Tim Flannery's scalp um, on a pike and then had seen, oh, well, actually, there's a huge amount of community support behind this. They're willing to put their money where their mouth is and um, get this organisation back up and running. Um, one of the first big reports we put out was about bushfires and climate change, and it was around the time that there were big bushfires in New South Wales in that spring. So quite early, well, very early in the season to be having very significant bushfires. And we made it very clear that there was a strong link between climate change and bushfires and that these bushfires were being made worse as a consequence of climate change. That was a very controversial thing to say in 2013. Mm. Tony Abbott criticised us for saying that. Um, but, you know, now it's common sense. It was one of those things that um, we were able to be very clear about what the facts were, which I think that had been known for some time that bushfires were influenced by climate change or made worse. But scientists hadn't said it as clearly as we were able to say it mm. and as consistently. Um, so we were just out in the media saying it over and over and over again until it becomes sort of a common sense proposition. And that's been true also for the um, introduction of renewable energy and battery storage. That's something the Climate Council has been doing you know, for the last couple of years and now it's quite common and there's no question about the capabilities of that kind of technology. So mm-hmm. it's something that the Climate Council has done quite well in terms of repetition and also explaining in simple terms. Absolutely. And that's, I suppose, our approach and our philosophy is we're a communications organisation And we look at what are the key things that need to be communicated in the public to be then getting outcomes on a political level at a policy level. Climate Council's always had a very clear approach to communications. We see our role as changing the public discourse so that then you get outcomes at a political and a policy level. So the extreme weather piece, the fire piece, was really important in sort of 2013, 2014 to establish that climate change was having an impact today. We've then moved on to doing much more in the renewable energy space, although obviously we keep talking about climate change, extreme weather, the impacts a lot. But in terms of renewable energy, at the time, I suppose it was 2013-14 as well, when we started doing quite a bit on the issue, um, the public was not aware that renewable energy with storage could power the economy. Mm. Um, That was a relatively new concept. So we've spent a number of years, and it takes years to change a public discourse. And the way that we do it is that we get accurate information, we find trusted voices, experts, but also a range of other voices that can um, tell the story of the issue we're trying to communicate. And then we say it over and over and over and over again. So it's that old adage that if you've said it a hundred times, your audience just heard it, has just heard it for the first time. So our job is to literally get thousands and thousands of articles across the Australian media, media um, saying the same thing in slightly different and engaging ways. So We've been doing that. We've put out... Is it, it's almost 100 reports, isn't it, now? Maybe it's over 100. Almost 100. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the 100. <laughs> so it's 100 in just over four years, which is an amazing amount of content that we've been sort of pumping out. Um, but the core message, although there's different content each time, is very clear. Climate change is affecting us now. The impacts are severe. And there is a solution and it's beneficial for the Australian public. So we've been telling that story in a lot of different ways. And I think if we look back over that four years, the public debate is, you know, worlds away from where it was at that time. And the Climate Council has achieved so much, especially for such a young organisation. You must feel quite 
a sense of pride and, and ownership over what you've done and helped to create along with the, the, the changes that you've enforced through the work that you've been doing. What are the goals that you're hoping to achieve now? Well, I feel really proud of what we've done and what we've done together with all of the people that have supported us across our community, the founding friends that were on board from day one. Um, but I suppose I'm always future-focused and thinking, well, what, what happens next? I'm really excited about a project that we launched in the middle of last year called the Cities Power Partnership, which is a more um, – it's got a communications lens but also a more practical lens. So we've now got um, over 100 – Almost 100, Almost yeah. 100 councils from around Australia that have committed to doing a range of different activities to reduce their emissions, to increase renewable energy. So those councils, they're working together. They create a very powerful voice on the national stage, but then they're also actually doing work in their own communities to get outcomes on the issues that we care about. So I feel really excited about that mix of a project that can both do the communications piece and the practical piece at the same time. And then I'm just really excited about the potential of the council into the future. I think that we very quickly became the number one voice on climate change following from the Climate Commission. Um, but increasingly, you know, there's interest in what we do internationally. There's interest um, in how we can continue to do these sorts of projects like the city's power partnerships for different audiences. So I'm just really excited about what we can do next and how we can continue to expand and get get outcomes, particularly in an environment where it's so hard to get outcomes at a federal government level and finally what advice would you give to um you know perhaps maybe they're a young university student listening who might be going down a similar path to you and wanting to you know create real difference what advice would you give them yeah i think the first thing is that um living a life of purpose is really critical at this time that we live so we live in a time where the world has a whole range of different huge challenges whether it's climate change or a range of other things and there's never going to be a time probably in history that's as important as now to be getting out there and actually having a go at doing something and when you're young you have the capacity to take risks that you can't have you may not be able to take as easily when you have a family or you know when you're further down the track so I encourage young people to really think about what is their purpose and then take risks to um, have a go and try and make a difference. You're up to date with the Climate Council podcast team. You can access all of the latest Climate Council reports, fact sheets and podcasts at climatecouncil.org.au. You can also follow us at Climate Council on Twitter and forward slash Climate Council on Facebook. Don't forget the Climate Council is independent and community funded. We rely on donations to fund our critical research, campaigns and projects. So please help to support our work and donate via our website today.